Hey, I'm Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Joseph. And I'm Steve. We're exploring a simple question. Why do people do what they do? Welcome to Working Title. Logan Cyrus, and I'm a freelance photojournalist based in Charlotte, North Carolina. All right, so that's your title, but tell us a little bit more. What do you actually do? Okay, so um, I I guess short answer is I, I make pictures. Um, most of uh, what I do is um, still photography. I do, uh, do a little bit of uh, video work, um, but uh, my week could consist of... Um, making a portrait of somebody for um, either local or national magazine, uh, photographing a news event or um, photographing an event for uh, a corporate client um, that could be here uh, in North Carolina or South Carolina, Georgia. What would be kind of a typical average assignment that you get then? Uh, It just depends on the client. So, I mean, I can um, get an assignment that's, that'll send me to, you know, like next week I'm going to Columbia, South Carolina to photograph somebody. Um, and it's just a portrait. And then um, I could come back and then get an assignment to photograph, uh, you know, some sort of open forum at like Duke um, for their in-house things. Or uh, I could be photographing my dog. <laughs> have have <laughs> you always, child. Have you always been freelance or was there a time when you were like specifically contracted for one entity? So when I started um, <clears throat> my kind of work as uh, being a photographer uh, in Charlotte, um, my first job was at Charlotte Magazine. Um, so That's I actually, right. I interned there before um, I was the staff photographer there. Um, so I did that for two years and then um, ended up going freelance in 2015, I think, somewhere around there. That's probably the majority of how photographers work, right? Freelance. Uh, yeah, well, especially uh, photojournalists. Um, newsrooms across the country are are shrink are shrinking. Um, you know, the Observer is is let off uh, laid off a, a lot of their um, photo staff over the years. Um, so, <clears throat> I think as that happens, um, there are people either already in the market or coming into the market realizing that this is kind of you know, um, you can't, I don't know if you can be a strict, strictly freelance photojournalist and make uh, money doing that. Typically you have to supplement it by, you know, <clears throat> getting commercial clients and things like that. So you end up doing a lot of work that maybe you don't necessarily feel as inspired doing. Um, but it helps, you know, when you're getting the lower paid gigs, uh, cause photojournalism usually pays a lot lower <clears throat> than say a corporate client, but it just makes it a lot easier knowing that like, I'm going to spend a day, uh, doing this story that's actually meaningful and something that I like to do, yeah. um, knowing that I'll have something else that I really don't want to do, um, or not that I don't want to do it, but just not have the same amount of passion towards um, later on. So that helps kind of fill the gaps. Sure. It's definitely the the passion side of it and, and the bill paying side of it mm. then. Yes. Yeah. yeah well, I think, go ahead. Sorry. I think that's... When you are in college, especially now, I went to the Art Institute of Charlotte, and when I was going through, it was a commercial-based program, so a lot of uh, 
what I quickly realized was like, I, I don't really want to do commercial work. Um, I want to do more um, editorial uh, photojournalism work. So, you know, looking at that, looking out in the world, I think a lot of people have this idea that I can just do that and be able to get by. And then you quickly realize like, okay, so this is probably not <laughs> a wise decision to just rely on this. So. Right. One of the things that shocked me the most, and we can cut this out if you don't want it uh, to be in, but when, for instance, you got the front page of the New York Times, and I asked you the invasive question of how much you got paid for that, and you told me the number, I thought I just figured that that would be like you hit a jackpot set for life. Yeah, or not set for life, but I just figured that that would be like you get four panels above the fold, full color, your name, this yeah. picture, like right. It, you you are going to get a huge check, and no. it's not, <laughs> not no. the case. Actually, the um, as newsrooms are shrinking, um, places like the New York Times actually they they were paying what they were paying for their day rate was almost criminal, um, and they saw the light and increased it. So oh, since wow. I think since them is um, that but is that always been the case or is it? Is that due to the saturation of the market in a sense that they know that they can find people out there to, to take pictures for them? Um, that's, I don't know if that's the case because it, it is, um, you know, I've had calls or emails from photo editors either locally or nationally. And they, if I can't, if I say I can't do it and a lot of times I'm maybe the second or third person they've already contacted in the area. So, they're just, they're hungry looking for other people. So I don't know that it's that. I just think that they um, maybe thought this is a way to do business um, knowing that like these, because honestly, if you want to do that kind of work, you'll do that for that pay. Um, and that's maybe fair, not fair, depending on, you, you know, I'm making the decision to do it. But I think morally, they had an obligation to maybe make it more of a, a living wage considering the amount of freelance work that goes into printing their daily newspaper. Um, so it was just, uh, it was, and it wasn't like forced. It wasn't like somebody was holding them hostage saying like, you know, on Twitter, it was just a decision they made because they wanted to make a conscience, eff conscious effort to, I guess, improve their product and the quality of the product so it was you know if you pay people more to do something they put more time and effort into it um, yeah. just because you're shooting for the new york times you know doesn't mean that like you're going to like go above and beyond it should and most people it does but you know after a while you're like well i'm getting paid like kind of not a great rate to do this so uh -huh. i can put half effort into it but if you're getting paid uh, and that goes for not just the times but like a lot of other people huh so we'll go back a lot further than this, but just the entry point into the Charlotte, um, the art Institute at Charlotte, like if you go back and start thinking about your mentality and your, your, what led you to make that decision to even go into there and then compare that to the work that you are doing now, um, are, are you where are you doing what you imagined you would be doing when you decided to go ahead and enroll in the Institute? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I honestly didn't know um, maybe what I wanted to do. And I think it changed a number of times from the point where I was uh, in high school, getting out of high school. Um, I almost, the first thing I did when I got out of high school, I almost was going to be um, 
like an aide at the Ohio General Assembly because I wanted to be a politician and I was going to study um, political science because that it always interests me. Um, and then something happened. I just kind of changed my mind and then um, went into their, uh, I went to Ohio University, was Eastern Campus um, after high school and studied photography there for a semester. Um, my second semester, I uh, just didn't go to any classes. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so then I just kind of, I didn't quit. I just stopped going, which I guess is well, quitting. Technically, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would like wake up at 2 p.m. and think like, well, I missed my class today, so it's not going to go. Uh, and then I obviously joined the military and then came back to it. And so when I came back to it later in life, I think I was still interested in um, still interested in like politics and how the world worked and the best part of being a, like a photographer that met that goal um, and that desire was to be a photojournalist because that's still, you know, I, I just, I've never not been a consumer of news. I really love current events and, and knowing what's going on in the world. Um, so those two things kind of lined up. Now, when I came here and decided to go, my wife, Jamie and I moved here. Um, the Art Institute seemed like the best choice because that seemed like the the wisest decision, you know, do a commercial program because that commercial photography pays a lot if you stick with it and do it for a long period of time. But the more I studied there, the more I realized, like, I don't really like doing this kind of work. So I had a lot of really good instructors there that um, knew that it wasn't quite what I want to do wasn't quite fitting into the curriculum, but they still like did as best they could to kind of nurture those things. So, I mean, I had, I think like three photojournalism focused classes um, that were taught by um, Nanine Hartzenbush. She's a really great local photographer. She won a, a Pulitzer, um, I think when she was working on a newspaper in New York uh, wow. that covered a, um, a metro train disaster. And she was part of the team that was, so she was a really great, and I still, you know, to this day, we still kind of keep in touch. And, and she kind of helped, um, you know, as I was getting out, ready to get into the world, you know, she, you know, re reviewed my portfolio and talked about like, you know, things, things I could add, things I can take away. Um, and then kind of like what, what it's like out there and, and things like that. So <clears throat> it's long, long, long story short, um, going to the art Institute probably was the wrong decision. Uh, especially now because it's closed. It doesn't, <laughs> like the Art, Art Institute of Charlotte is Oh, I was, yeah, I was no going to say, I've never exists. heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, what year would that have been that you graduated? Uh, 2012. Okay. Or 2013. But um, so then like right out of there, uh, I started working at the magazine because that was the newspaper. Um, they wouldn't return any of my like emails or phone calls. So I, it was hard to get my name in there. So Oh boy, that was a mistake. <laughs> no. I've still tried to like with the observer I've, I've like got you know I don't I would love to freelance for them but every time I would like email I remember one one time I, I got I was emailing back and forth with the photo director that's no longer there and uh, I was like are there any openings this is like maybe after I was already at the magazine for a while and uh, he's like oh it's just uh, you know prep sports uh, it's something that you wouldn't probably want to shoot and I was like no I'll shoot that like and I sent an email back like no that sounds great like I'll go and yeah. photograph like high school football. That, that's awesome. And I just never heard back. So <laughs> I think it was just like, tell me to go away. <laughs> so how long post-graduation then you went from that into interning at the magazine? Is that? 
Yeah. So, so part of the part of the the structure of the program was that before you graduated from the R Institute, you had to do a, a internship. So it was part of, I think, one of the last classes you take. It's it's like an actual internship. So you have to like show up and get papers signed by the people, and you know check in with an instructor every time, you know, every couple weeks. Um, <clears throat> but so when I was there, uh, Chris Edwards, who was the previous staff photographer had already kind of stepped out. So they had us, they didn't have anybody there as, as a staff photographer. So I wanted to do that job. Uh, Cause I could see that for one, I could probably learn a lot of other types of photography, you know, shooting like home interiors and shooting food and photographing people like portraits and also doing, they also did and still do a lot of like really great long form journalism. So you can do a lot of really great feature photography, which, you know, like you can be on a story for a month and that's, that just doesn't really exist very much anymore. Um, so then knowing that I could probably learn a lot doing that job, um, so I really kind of hounded uh, Rick Thurman uh, yeah. and Jane and Jane Fields um, at the magazine um, that I, you know I want to work here and and yeah they gave me a shot. Were you always drawn to photography in your life? Like how did that how did that impulse start? What what got you to say I want to be a photographer? Um, so I don't know. I think I think as a kid, you know, you always have this. From, I'm not. I'm a very impatient person, so it's funny to say now. Like thinking that back in the day, getting your your photos <laughs> developed in an hour was like mind blowing. Like, oh, you know, um, you know, it was faster than painting a picture or, or having to sit down and write a story. Um, but uh, a family friend, Andy Kerr, when I was a kid, let me oh, borrow. I know her. Andy. Can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> back in the Ohio Valley. Yeah, maybe you do. I don't know. You're from Ohio. Um, so let me borrow her camera and. I remember using that actually, I think in my first year at, um, Ohio university and kind of, you know, that was like right at the end of, um, doing shooting film. So the program was actually film based. So I, I was able to actually learn a little bit of, of dark room and, and shooting on film and, you know, having to do all that. So it was kind of, um, that kind of clouds your judgment of like what you want to do. Cause you're, you're so caught up in the technique and all that. Right. Um, so I really didn't know maybe then what I wanted to do in that time. I just knew I wanted to take pictures. And I think at the older I got with anything else, I think you, the older you get, you realize like, okay, so this, these are how all these little pieces fit together in my mind. Like I like this, mm -hmm. this, this, and this, and I'm trying to, I don't have the like mental capacity to be able to like make those connections cause you're young. Right. So then the older you get, and the farther you get away from it, the more you're able to kind of like fit them together. So, so you went, you basically went, uh, you, there was a point in high school that, you know, you started gaining interest then to the point where you thought it might be a career or whatever, but then very quickly you decided to stop going to classes. Yes. So what was that arc? Um, where, did you become, when you were sitting at two o'clock in the afternoon, in your room or whatever, having decided not to go that day, was it, were you wrestling with things like, what am I doing? Why I don't want to be a photographer or, or was it the specific aspects like that they were making you study that you wanted to be pursuing something different, a more artistic side of it? Um, or what's the art that took you from, from the, from high school to that point then? Honestly, I think it was just like 
I was really being lazy and yeah. I really just liked um, being at home uh, and sleeping in till two. And I mean, that's really kind of sad to say, but I think that's for a lot of people. I think if you're really honest, you look back of like, you know, like, why did I, you know, piss away the first three or four years after high school? It's like, well, because maybe you just didn't want to do anything. Well, it's funny that we expect an 17, 18 year old to lock in. Like, no, you have to start acting like a 35 year old. Right. And no focus. <laughs> right. I, um, yeah. So I, I had my first job. I was working um, at the same time that I was not going to class. I was a, a server at this place called Garfield's in the St. Crystal Mall. Oh. in Ohio and um, closed Mondays making insane because they hate money. it. Oh. I was not like, I, I don't know, like I'm a fairly personable person, um, but I was awful at being a server. I never had like any good tips. It was, uh, so like you could write on crayons. So one of the things was like, there was on the tables, like paper you'd pull Craft out. paper or whatever. Yeah. And they could like, there's like crayons and I got like really good at like writing my name upside down in crayon at the table. <laughs> I remember one time somebody, this is like burned in my memory. Somebody wrote in crayon on the table after they left, it said tip colon. And it was in red crayon. I remember this, be a better waiter. <laughs> and I was just like, all right, maybe this isn't great. So, I mean, I worked, I did that for about a year and then I ended up joining the military. But um, yeah, I think I was just looking for meaning um, somewhere and like joining the military was like the fastest way I could probably get to feeling like I was doing something. Um, so that's, I, again, coming, not being a patient person. Yeah. So that's, it, that's a, that's a consistent arc for some people though. I know a lot of people that just kind of either restless or just completely aimless and say, this is, this is rigid structure that is going to instantaneously be, something that feels meaningful. Right. I don't think I knew that consciously at the time. Like not, I, I had family that was in the military. So I had like this idea of like, I could do this and, it, and it's something that I feel like would make my family proud. Right. Um, and also gets me from just laying around and gives me some sort of purpose to figure out what it is that I want to do. So, and I was really interested in, the medical field, uh, I actually, I, I was going to, um, when I was going to join, I was going to be um, a photographer in the Navy. But at the time, I'm not sure if it's still the case, you would have to go, they actually send you to Syracuse and you go through the specific um, photo program that they have for military members at this at the school, at the oh, college. Wow. And I think it's like two years and there was a wait to get in. So I was like, well, I like medical stuff. I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Not a, not a good thing for an impatient person. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wait. exactly. And, and then, beyond that, you're like, I'm already in school, not going to class. Right. I'm not going to Syracuse. Exactly. And then around that same time, this movie came out called Tears of the Sun. I remember this it was with like Bruce Willis about these Navy SEALs. Anyway, there was a Navy corpsman that was on like part of the team that was in the movie. And I saw that and I was like, dude, I want to do that. I want to do that, whatever that guy's doing. Um, and I think that's like, as a dumb 18 year old kid, that's the, those are the things like I saw a movie. I don't want to like wait for this Syracuse thing. So I'm going to do yeah. this, um, you know, Navy Corman thing. Very it, like Steve is exactly right. It, it is astounding that at 17 and 18, we're trying to make major life decisions. Right. Just a moron. Yeah. Like, 
like you've backed your way into finding meaning and you, you figure it out, but like, it's insane. Right. Yeah. And, uh, we don't realize at the time how powerful movie is in, in rec- <laughs> recruiting us into our life's calling. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially Bruce Willis. Yeah. You know, every, every preacher was right. Power suggestion, brother. <laughs> you got to watch what comes in. Right. Well, I think too, you know, both my parents, I feel like both raised me right. And they, so I think at some point, I think when you're 18, you're on a path of being the person you're going to be when you're 40. So I think a lot of the decisions that you're making are, you're not saying like, I'm going to do this because I need structure. You just have that like thought that's been planted in the back of your brain from both of your parents that says like, don't be a dumbass and right. like do your work and you can't, <laughs> you know, be, you know, my mother was like very gracious. I don't think that she knew to the extent that I was skipping classes, but, um, in Ohio, like you can go, I went there because it was free. Like you can go mm-hmm. to like a, a satellite campus of a state school for, I think a year almost. Um, so it's like, I wasn't wasting money. I was just wasting time. And that seemed like, okay, to a point. And then it was like, okay, probably. Were you feeling bad about yourself at 2 PM? Uh, yeah, I don't remember liking, um, I used to be a smoker and I don't know if either of you smoke, but like if you're a smoker and you smoke a lot of cigarettes, you know, you, you go out, you have a cigarette or two in your body. You feel like your body just like knows that you just inhaled cigarettes. Yeah. You know, what, what brand just in case we're looking for sponsors. Uh, I, I smoked for a long time, Marlboro 27s and then oh, yeah. Marlboro menthol lights, which is like probably the dumbest cigarette to smoke. Um, and then I tried to smoke, um, American spirits at the end. Hey, um, going healthy because it was yeah because <laughs> it was organic a cool thing to do right healthy um but yeah i think i probably felt um pretty bad waking up at 2 2 p.m because it's like by that point i'm a morning person yeah. but i also was i like to sleep so what were your friends doing like did you have a circle of friends who were ambitious and out capturing everything <laughs> that they want to be doing in the world or hedge fund managers at yeah. 21 well well so um my wife, Jamie, um, who I'm married to now, actually, we were dating at the time. Um, so a lot of, I think a lot of actually what kept me from maybe going out and going to class was <laughs> all I really cared about was whatever she was going to do, you know, um, not to, I'm not blaming her for me being, <laughs> um, blinded by love at a young age, but but yeah, I think that's especially when I when I also go back and, and look at those and think about those days, like that was the thing that I was totally focused on anyway, um, was like hanging out with her and, and doing that kind of stuff. Which was a good move Which, in hindsight. Yeah, in hindsight, you know, I went to a small Christian school and they really hated the fact that, you know, we were dating and how like, you know, it wasn't wasn't godly to be kids <laughs> dating. And now it's like we've been married almost twelve years and I just wanna like poke all of them like you know <laughs> certified letters yeah right fyi here's our son yeah no I, i'm pretty sure they're all happy for us so it's good yeah what did you shoot pictures when you were because you got uh you got deployed a couple of times right yes did you shoot pictures for your just for yourself when you were over there yeah so the first my first appointment um i was in fallujah and i uh, I took, I had like a, I'm not sure what kind of camera it was. It was like a little gray box, uh, <laughs> just a really like maybe a, an eight megapixel, you know, whatever. So I took a lot of pictures with that because I, I had, 
I still had the desire to like to 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 Docu- make pictures and document. Yeah, or just you know, I'm not even sure like what whatever it is that people have that makes them want to to put a camera up and take a picture of it. Just I had that. So Right. Um and I have yeah, a collection of images from from that from that time that just kind of uh, I'll go back and look at and go like, oh, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> you signed, it was four years, right, that you were in? So, yes, yeah, so four years, but then they add on time for, uh, so like my training, I think they added a year on for that. Uh, so there was, there was a moment you signed your name and like in that matter of two seconds, I they own you. I have freedom and I just gave four to five years away. Yes. And yeah. they are very, and when that happens, uh, they're, it's, it's, they're not like, they're not trying to trick you. They, like <laughs> as soon as it happens, they're like, all right, it's time <laughs> you're done. So yeah. And like, you really kind of realize that, uh, right away. And then, um, yeah, you get off the bus and then people are yelling at you and you're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, how, how is that? Are you, were you the kind of kid at that point that was like, you could fall into that and do basic training and fall in line and be fine with it? Or was it a struggle? So my, so when you join the military, you have, you go to a recruiting office and you have a recruiter and they're pretty much your liaison to get you from, you know, from like your house to the plane, uh, to boot camp. <clears throat> so she would take me up to Pittsburgh. That's where my uh, MEP station was. And that's where you go through your physical things like that. And um, so she was really good about Petty Officer Doak. Uh, and she was really good about giving me like really practical advice about joining the military. And I'm not sure if that's just because who she was or she knew kind of my, how mm-hmm. I, how, you know, my sensibilities were. Uh, I'm not an alpha male of any stretch of the imagination. And I'm, I'm definitely not somebody who likes to rock the boat. Um, so she said, uh, when you, when you're there, she's like, just listen to what they tell you and don't volunteer to do anything. And I was like, that seems like pretty <laughs> solid advice. I can handle that. Yeah. So, so I didn't do that. So when I got there, you know, there was, you could like put your name up to be any part of like, uh, you can be the, um, I can't remember the names, but you could be the guy who like marches alongside formation and, and calls cadence, or you can be the guy that leads the formation, or you can be like a section leader and these types of things. And all those people had responsibilities. So like when the shit hit the fan, those people would be the first ones to get in trouble. So that was her idea of like, and I realized it soon after I got there, like, Oh, okay. So that's why she's telling me to not to just lay low and just be whatever. So I was, I mean, boot camp is really easy. Uh, at least Navy boot camp was because all you had to do was just pay attention and listen to what people were telling you. Granted, half the time they're telling it to you, they're yelling it at you. So like you're, it's, it's just, you know, getting you prepared for just being in situations where you have to think on your feet. So like by the time I was done, you know, all the people that would volunteer would fail miserably. (laughs) And then just, so like they're all, so by the time uh, I finished boot camp. I was the section leader because nobody, <laughs> there was nobody else left. And like, you just have to do this. And so like, yeah. by default, right. By default. So like I had like the last maybe like two weeks of boot camp. I had to like to do that. And by that time, like everything's pretty much good. So I, I didn't get fired. I got to like, and your, and your parents got to come see you and think that you were just a stud the whole time. Uh, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, if you, if you've seen like pictures of me, 
um, around that time, there was there was nothing. It was I probably weighed like ninety pounds. I have like really big ears and these terrible like military um, glasses, these big Coke bottle glasses. Your but. buzz cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my favorite thing. One of my favorite things about you is that you just said Navy Navy boot camp is super easy. Because like if I if I had done like one quarter of one day of boot camp, I would be talking about it like it was like I had climbed Everest or something. Uh, I, I don't know. I think if you go there, if you go and do it, um, I just, when you're there, it's it's tough. Sure. I remember like I couldn't write a, a letter home like the first month i don't even know how long it is maybe there's maybe it's only a month long i don't remember but it's, it seemed like a long time but like i would like start to cry as soon as i would like write a letter home and it's like i don't know why i could look back and think i don't remember why i was so emotional but like also to the iraq war had just started i remember like sitting at meps watching like doing one of my physicals like watching the you know troops come in from like Kuwait into, I don't know if it was from Kuwait or not, but like seeing that happen. So like there was this sense of that was happening. I know what's about to happen. To yeah. Me. And like every day, the, my, my, um, drill instructors were reminding us that like, yeah. you know, you guys are idiots and you're going to die <laughs> <laughs> Cool, because you, cause you can't listen essentially. And that's partially true. You know what I mean? People who don't listen, who get complacent, that's, there's the people that, they don't always make it, you know, they fall off the side of the boat or something. Yikes. Man. So jumping, jumping back a little bit further, like the house uh, that you were brought up in, in the household, how was, how was vocation thought of um, in regards to, you know, like figuring out what you wanted to do? I know you were, uh, you're from up North and mm -hmm. uh, what, what's the town name? Uh, well, well, I grew up uh, on, County Road 15, uh, yeah. which is uh, our post office was in Rayland, Ohio. So our, our we were technically in Rayland, but we were kind of out in the country. But um, but yeah, so I grew up uh, close to Steubenville, Ohio. That's the next closest thing that people ever heard of. Yeah. And, you know, when I grew up uh, very rural western Pennsylvania, same type of atmosphere, you know, just that blue collar small town. Right. And th there wasn't a whole lot of talk. Well, outside of like the outside of the church language of you know find god's will for your life outside of that it the, the talk of vocation was never really linked to purpose right. or calling it was always linked to you know not saying it's a bad thing but the blue collar mentality of well you know you have to find your own place to live you've got to find a way to pay your bills support your family that sort of thing um so was that was that similar to you how was how was vocation spoken of or what was your what did you associate with, with your search of vocation? Was the idea of purpose or destiny or whatever word you want to attach to it part of your thought process? Um, I don't know. There was never, like, we never sat around the table and talked about, like, what you want to do when you grow up. When I was a kid, uh, my parents both worked um, blue-collar jobs, and I don't think that there was any, I don't know, I don't remember there being, like, any sort of sense of my parents saying like, well, you have to have a better life than I had. Um, I think that the, the important part, which I think is, which is good. I think of parents that do that, that say like, oh, I, I want my kid to have a better life than me. Um, I think that their mentality was, we want you to be happy and you want to have a happy life. Whatever you're doing, that's the more important thing. So it wasn't like you need to go out and make millions of dollars, things like that. The idea was, was centered more around 
do do something that you can do, but also find joy and and, and pleasure doing that. Um, so, did they model that for you? Did you did your parents? Did you see joy in them as far as what getting joy from what they did? Yeah. So my my house my household growing up. Well, I mean. So my, my father wasn't a Christian. He was an alcoholic um, f- up until maybe I was maybe 10. And then he stopped drinking and kind of changed his life around. But then my parents ended up getting divorced after that. So like, uh, and then my father died shortly thereafter. So, um, but growing up, there was always laughter in my home. I remember, I remember things, you know, about my parents either having a fight or something like that when I was like really little. But when there's times where there was fighting, there was also like, a lot of great joy. So I remember more joy and happiness than mm-hmm. I do like negative things um, growing up. So, you know, it wasn't, um, I don't know. It was all mostly, mostly good. Um, I can't remember your question anymore. Well, just if, if that joy, <laughs> it like, you know, if they wanted their kid to be happy, I remember the most, one of the most powerful things that my dad is so simple, but I remember it so clearly. One of the things that he said to me, I don't even remember the circumstances at the time, but he, I was much smaller or pretty young. And he just said, basically at the end of the day, you know, you'll learn this someday if you become a parent is you just want your kid to be happy, Mm. you know? And I, I do, I think that that's just an extremely powerful desire for your, for your child. But did, did they, did you see in them a joy specifically attached to what they were doing? Like, did they get joy out of the way in which they expressed themselves vocationally? Or was joy something that seemed to be kind of detached, even though it was present? Uh, yeah, I guess so. So where my parents worked, they worked at this place called Cregan and Company, and then uh, they used to build, like, animations uh, that you'd see in a store window. So, like, um, you know, my dad was kind of like the foreman. So if say a company came in there, like we want to do a window display for our department store and we want to have like these little, like, you know, animatronic things. It was very rudimentary and it was like usually a, a metal plate with different uh, bars and gears with a motor that like, so if the hand wanted to go up and down as opposed to side to side, my dad had to figure out how to like do that. And, you know, he never went to college. He just was good at math and was able to figure those things out. So the company he worked for is like a mom and pop place, uh, very a very familial mindset. Uh-huh. Um, so, because of that, work was like I remember times where the company would be on hard times and they couldn't pay the workers on time, or they had to like lay somebody. My dad got laid off like two or three times from that job, but they always like called him back. You know what I mean? So it was this thing where all of those things kind of mixed together and like my my best friend now uh, that I grew up with um, his parents worked there too and so you know I remember like weekends coming there uh, with my parents had to work or like during the week during the summer and like playing there and that's and that was kind of like it's unheard of to think that that place it doesn't exist anymore right. actually the, the physical building actually burned down um, but so I think a lot of my life was actually my creative mind was nurtured by hanging around this place where there were creative people as a blue collar town. Like it's, you know, they're not working in a steel mill. They're, they're making like uh, a Santa Claus that 
is waving its hand to people as they come into the department store. And you're like, they're doing that kind of stuff. So it's, it's still like hard, like labor work. But it's um, extremely interesting. And but it's, it's not, interesting, and yeah. And it's not just an assembly line kind of boring minutia. All right. The- and, it, and the people that work there were interesting people. And they, you know, I remember um, two people in particular. Uh, her name was Frosty. She was this super tiny little Italian lady. <laughs> and she did all the painting. Like she painted all the faces. And She was also a snowman. She was not a snowman. <laughs> um you know, and there's a the seamstress department, and that's where my mother, um, she used to work in the seamstress department, and then she ended up, you know, working down in the retail part of the store. They sold, like, um, like cake things and, like, decorating things and things like that. Um, so it's a very, it wasn't in the sense of, like, like Google or, you know, a place like that where, like, creativity is happening all the time, but it was inherently a creative place because creative things were happening. You know what I'm saying? So I think spending a lot of time there, all of the things about my family, it wasn't really separate. I mean, it was because I don't think my dad really loved his job. I don't know if my mother really loved her job. But to me, that was probably the thing that pushed me into maybe being more creative. They, they didn't squash any sort of like creative juices that I had. Um, and they definitely were, my, my mother and my father are both very intellectual people. They, they like to talk about things. And they, they like being in their own head about stuff. Um, so at a young age, my dad always, we always watched the nightly news and always talked about things and always had arguments. Um, I've never met my, my grandfather on my dad's side before I was born, but I've always like heard that Cyrus men love to argue. And, and so like, and it was always, it wasn't about like dumb stuff. It was always about stuff that well, I mean, I'm probably, it was probably about dumb stuff half the time, but because um, most arguments are. But, you know, so I think both of those things, being around that environment um, and not having that squashed and then also being part of this other thing where I kind of grew up seeing um, the generosity of spirit of people that my dad worked for, my mom worked for, you know, seeing kind of like, you know, so it all kind of just melds together in this weird pot. There's like this, um, there's this overlap of, you know, when it comes to those types of jobs and it's where it's like where create creativity meets like blue collar labor where, you know, cause how much of, you know, how much of even the artistic world, um, how much of what they do is just actually doing the work, right. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, uh, you know, maybe if you want to talk a little bit more about that because obviously you're a very creative person, but you're also part of what you do is just simply, and I don't mean this in a negative way, is work, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, um, do you find do you do you separate those in your mind, like, or or is it just all part of of what you do? I guess I'm trying to get to like how each of those plays into to what you do. Like how, how much do you see what you do as creativity, and how much do you see it is just is is simply just you know, getting up and going to work? Um, I don't know. I, cause I, that's an interesting question is like, I feel like I think about that a lot um, of like why it is that I am able to do the, the thing that I do um, because I think it's being able to, I guess self-motivate is already difficult enough, but I think a lot of times, and it's something that I've noticed in the military is that I, I'm a, I'm an introvert, so I don't, 
I'm not outgoing. I, I think that I don't think when people talk to me for the first time or even the, the third or fourth time, totally get me and who I am. And that's fine because I don't necessarily maybe broadcast it to them. Um, but one thing I kind of uh, noticed that after you do something for a long period of time, you're like, why, why did people call me back? Or why is it that I'm able to like go out and shoot an assignment and kind of get people to be as honest um, to allow me to photograph them? And I think it just is all stemming from that mindset of just do your work, you know, mm-hmm. don't be an idiot. Um, and that I think people respond to that and I'm not trying to outpace or outwork anybody, but I just, when I'm out with somebody doing a story or from photographing somebody, I want to give them the, the due that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, willfully giving what they know about something. So I've noticed that if you put the work in and you show them, not show them like I'm, you know, doing this to try to like manipulate you. But if I'm just who I am and myself, that means that I'm going to be um, spending as much time to like get whatever it is that I'm doing right. That's not always true, but um, I try to make that true. Uh, And people respond to that. And I think that that is, the thing that creates success for me by being a creative person. It's not about what I create because I'm not, I'm, I'm probably more of a thinker and a, somebody that wants to, you know, show, this is kind of, I'm kind of talking in a circle, but I want to show people what's happening. And the best way that I can do that is just be myself and not actually be creative. So I think my creativity is born from, uh, me being interested and curious and also not being an asshole. So I think a lot of people, and I see that these types of, especially photojournalists that they, they're, they're wanting to treat people like they're not actual people because you have to put up this wall. Um, I don't particularly want to do that. Uh, it's, that has its own shortcomings. Um, but at the same time, I want to, I want to tell the right story but I also want to be a nice person when I do it. And I think there's a way to do that. Um, that doesn't kind of, you know, make you like a paparazzi type photographer. I mean, and people can sense motivation too. If they sense you using them as a, as the template to put your creativity on or whatever. And I, one question that Steve and I were talking about before we got over here was, is there something about that that's true to the actual form itself with photography that like you said, I'm not pursuing creativity, like especially in photojournalism, you, you are trying to capture what is right. And not manufacture something. So you're trying to tell the story as true as you can. So, I mean, whatever, without getting into objective observer versus subjectivity or something, how do you, how do you kind of view that reality? Like, um, are you just trying to, be in the background of something, not make yourself prominent because you are just trying to capture the thing that is in front of you. Like, does any of that make sense? Yeah. So I think for me and a lot, and I've actually kind of um, honed this skill from other listening to other photographers talk about, you know, process things like that of being an observer. And, you know, I can't a hundred percent say that I'm not a creative person. So when I'm making a photograph, especially, you know, if it's uh, more of like a news event, you know, I want it to 
to be interesting and um, I have my own thought and how I see the world uh, and I want to capture that. But anytime I ever photograph um, anything, um, it's not, I don't, I think like, so if I shoot a, a portrait of somebody and it's a good portrait, it's not, it's nothing that I did to like make the picture look that way. It's all encased in what is happening before the photo is made or like during. So like a lot yeah. of times somebody's really uncomfortable when we first start and then, you know, you have to just burn through those first few images because they're just, there's just tense, there's tension. And, you know, and I'm somebody, I always tell people before I start photographing them, like, you know, we're going to talk a little bit and, you know, you just have to trust me that if your mouth's hanging open in one of the shots, I'm not going to use it. <laughs> um, and that's, and usually out of that. So like any picture that I've ever made of somebody that is good, it's from what they did. It's from what, it's from the barrier that they put down. Um, it's from them allowing me to, to just, uh, you know, come in within a few minutes and then say, well, I'll trust you to not, you know, make me into some, you know, something other than. It's very relational. Yes. And it should be. And I think that that's a problem with a lot of photography, uh, is that it's, it's so impersonal. People are saying, you know, like, um, the people that are into like, I'm not sure if Kinfolk is like a real magazine anymore, but they're talking about like, you know, that's the real storytelling of living an authentic life. And it's like, no, it all looks the same. It's not being authentic has nothing to do with aesthetics being, you know, it's, it has everything mm -hmm. to do with everything that happens before you write a story, before you photograph somebody. And it's only something that you only have by just having this idea of the world. You know what I mean? And so I think that's what sets work apart is that it looks, you're not trying to, I'm not trying to make any picture look a certain way. I'm just allowing whatever, that's a really hippy dippy way of saying it, but that's just how it goes. You just have to allow it to happen. And then sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes it's not good. Um, and but you do more. help create it through the way in which you, you interact with the, you know, the object of the, mm -hmm. That's such a fascinating paradox of, of being not asserting yourself too much onto something, but also not being so cold that you are not, you're, you're trying to pretend that you don't exist. And obviously you can't cause you do have a role in it. Right. But, uh, even like James Ford, when you did his portrait for Charlotte magazine, wasn't that little session that you guys had the start, the genesis of like a friendship, like he, there was something from that, intimacy of, of that thing that you guys created that is, am I, am I telling that wrong? Um, I no, I think that James is just a very, he's a very giving person, um, with just, uh, his warmth. Mm -hmm. And I think people are drawn to that and then they're drawn to him. That photo is actually, that was on the cover of the magazine was that wouldn't have happened without Jane Fields because, um, the, he has a look on his face and he's like looking off mm -hmm. camera. He's actually talking to her and laughing. And a lot of times, a lot of really great photos that I've made like that one happened because it's, I'm just literally with the camera, just looking and, mm -hmm. and photographing and, and the person is doing, you know, that was him being him in that moment because he was talking to Jane and I can't remember exactly what they were talking about, but um, you know, and those are the things that, it's literally nothing that I did. I was there with a camera and he was able to just be himself, mm -hmm. be gracious enough to be who he is every day, James Ford, um, and just be talking to somebody, uh, Jane Fields, who was standing there talking to him. So like, 
there, there wasn't like this. I think people think about photography in a way like, you know, um, like Annie Leibovitz, you know, when she's like photographing somebody, you know, like photographing the queen of England and telling the queen of England to take her crown off because it just looks bad, you know? And the queen of England says, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. It's taken me like an hour to do this. And she goes, well, <laughs> maybe you should like, let's do a couple. And like, so there's people who do that, like, but nine times out of 10, just a regular old, like weirdo photographer like me is just, I'm just, I'm looking for some way that this can happen. And, and I'm not going to like say like, Jane, yeah, we're in this middle <laughs> of this intimate moment. We need to make sure that we're very quiet. You know what I mean? It's How nothing like that. You. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I need uh, to get James to look slightly left. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that was the thing. Like, you know, a lot of times Jane would come in and talk and knowing, you know, that dynamic, she would um, be speaking and then most of the time when people are making small talk, you're going to be smiling and nobody makes like the most <laughs> dark, you know, like brooding. How are you doing today? <laughs> well, you know, I have a colonoscopy tomorrow and uh, I got these hemorrhoids. <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, the so the question is not, you know, is photography. Do you do you see yourself as an artist or is, is photography an art? It, it is. It just it absolutely is you know, and you are an artist, you're creative, but, but with photography, it really is, it's, it's different, isn't it? Because like you were just talking about you and you know, you were just there and you captured what was already be going, been been happening. And so like, you know, again, Joseph and I were talking earlier and I was wondering about the idea of inspiration to you. You know, you you can see in a photograph a lot of times whether or not it was a product of inspiration or or just something that needed to be done. But if you talk to like a lot of different artists, whether it's a painter, a writer, or you know, or whatever, a lot of them will talk to, to the moments of inspiration when they feel like they were able to step aside and something else was coming through them. Whether it's like just you know, a moment of dialogue and a play that's being written or whatever. It's like that came from somewhere else with photography. How do you talk about inspiration? Cause that doesn't necessarily fit in that way. Does it? Um, yeah, I guess it can be, but just like in a different type of way. Um, so one thing I can just think of automatically that was really inspiring for me um, to look at and, and kind of consume was, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, the New York Times put out uh, <clears throat> this pretty big, it was the for the Saturday paper. So it was pretty much every um, uh, congressperson who was a woman uh, in the United States, and they photographed all of them for this special section in the newspaper. It's full page, right? It, yeah, I mean, like sure. Huge images yes. or something? So the, 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 the front page of that section, so the, the beauty of it was that um, every, so like, and in, in my, Alma Adams is the representative from, from where right. I am. So like those representatives would be the cover in that part of the country. So it, so it was like different ones. And just like looking at the way it was photographed, there's two um, photographers that I can't remember either their names right now. Um, but, but that was all done by an idea. So it was a pretty much uh, female photo editors, female photographers photographing female congresspeople, which is and just like looking at how each 
photo. Uh, I don't, I forget how many there were like, I'm not sure it was quite, it was probably over a hundred. Um, but how every photograph was, it, it's, it stood up on its own. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that is like, that is a very difficult thing to do to create that many portraits in that sort of like, I think they were all done uh, the day that they came in to be sworn in. sworn in. Yeah. And that's just a really difficult thing to do logistically, let alone be able to, you know, it's not like that's Vanity Fair. That's just, you know, as, as, as popular the New York Times is, like there's only so many people that work there. They only have so much budget for things. And to be able to like pull that off. Gorgeous images for all of them. Yeah, all they're all, and, and Alma Adams' photo is just, it's, I want to frame it because it's the, the look on her face, just everything about it is like perfect. And that type of stuff like inspires me. Like when I see that kind of work that makes me want to be better at what I do and, and take more time and effort and like study like why this is good. Mm-hmm. Um, so why was that good? it was good because the people that were doing it wanted to do it and like cared about it. So the people who were doing it and the people being photographed cared about it. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I think when creativity and, and true storytelling come together, when it's mutual, it comes together and I want to do this and I want to do this and that's how it's going to be. And I think that that is, and then also having the technical knowledge at the end of the day to like, to pull it off is, is important, but you know, sometimes the spark is there and sometimes it's not. And when it, when it's there, you could look at that special section in your times and say like, that's, that's when it like comes together perfectly. What, one of the things that I love about you is that, uh, and it's polar opposite of me is that you're not like a camera gear head. Like, you know, like my, my thought is, okay, that picture is good because they had this lens and they used this thing in light. I don't know, like whatever they, they edit it in this way. And the thing that you show me over and over again, is like, it, it does not hardly matter (laughs) what, what you're shooting with. It's, it's everything beyond that. It's who's shooting it, what they're shooting. Yeah. It's the work. I had to buy two new camera bodies um, a couple months ago. And I remember, you know, I think I I got a deal on black Friday or cyber Wednesday or whatever. (laughs) poopy Tuesday. <laughs> um, and I remember Jamie, my wife, she was like, Oh, are you excited? Your cameras are coming today. And it's like, if I was a, if I like did construction and it was like my two my new hammers were coming in the mail, like I just, it's just really that it's not exciting. It's actually a bummer because you're looking at how much these two camera bodies are. And you're like, man, we could use that for something like fun. Um, I just like, love it, that about you. Yeah. There's, there's so it's many, it's not just me. There's when you, when you're, Having to, cause you're wearing out your, like the reason why I'm like having to replace them is I'm, I wore out the, the shutters and the other cameras. So like, you just, you have to buy them because it's like, you know, I had like two cameras die on an assignment and I <sighs> had like, luckily I just, for whatever reason, had like another body with me that I was able to use. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's just not, it's not fun. Um, I do get excited about buying lenses though. Cause I do, cause a lens will actually, you could kind of change the way something can look and but a body is like putting new tires on yeah, the car or yeah, something oh, just yeah. like the it's worst. exactly like that where it's like six hundred dollars for these tires and I, and I drove out sure? of here the exact same way I right. drove in here. It's yeah. awful. Right, right. So Steve, do you want to do the uh all right we speed it up a little bit. 
lightning round? Okay. Or is there anything that we haven't hit? Well, I'd I'd love for you to speak to just some of the, you know some of the cool things you've done. Like mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you are extremely a modest person, but you've done some pretty amazing things. I mean, whether it's covering, you know, well, I don't know if covering you know politics, local politics has been a always a great thing. But you've been at the DNC, mm-hmm. you've covered, mm-hmm. you know, um, Billy Graham's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a thousand that I'm missing, but like maybe pick one or two of, and talk about what it's meant to be, you know, just on, just graciously given the opportunity to be at those moments, to be the one capturing them. Uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, there's, I guess a few, um, it was cool to, uh, the DNC was, was really great. Um, and I could probably talk about that at length, but I won't, uh, there's a lot of diff- really interesting things that happened, um, during that time. But, uh, I think one of the pictures I made that I was like, ah, oh, this is kind of cool. Uh, it's not as depressing as like covering, um, a funeral or a hurricane. It was when, um, Michelle Obama, uh, like appeared for the first time with Hillary Clinton. And it happened, I think, um, some college, uh, was it in Greensboro? I don't, I don't remember uh, where it was, but it was just, you know, getting that assignment and, you know, like hearing that like, oh, this is going to happen. This is going to be really cool. And like witnessing history and and kind of making a photograph that, you know, even if nobody uses it ever, uh, you still, it still exists somewhere on some hard drive that's not in your, you know what I mean? It becomes kind of part of, you know archives the witness of like this happened yeah. this day and in, in, in that kind of thing but um i think my f- my favorite thing i ever did uh which is um probably i don't know if it's weird or not but uh i got an assignment one day it was during the the campaigns and um trump had just revoked the um press credentials for the Washington post to, to be part of his press pool. So I got a, a call. He was going to, Trump was going to be in Greensboro that night. I got a call from one of the photo editors at the, at the Washington post. And he said, Hey, I got this assignment for you. And he's like, I don't know if you want to do it or not, but give me, I, I didn't answer my phone. He said, give me a call back. So I call him back and he said, Hey, um, so he's like, I'm sure maybe you heard, maybe you didn't. He's like, Trump revoked the press credentials for the Washington post. Um, would you be willing to be blackballed? <laughs> and that was like the word. I was like, blackballed? He said, yeah. He's like, we need somebody to go to his rally tonight to photograph it. But he's like, you can't, because you. I would have to go into the rally as an attendee. I couldn't bring a camera. And at the time, it kind of was like loosened up at some point because I, I did an assignment like a, a few months later where I had to do the same thing, but I brought a camera with me, but he's like, so what kind of like camera phone do you have? And I told him, I was like, I had an iPhone. I was like iPhone six. So my job was to pretty much go to the rally, go to the rally. <laughs> and I think that it was just, it wasn't that they needed photos of the rally. They just, uh, we, was, this wasn't like articulated, but in my mind it was not like an FU, but it was like, you can't stop. Yeah, right. Journalism from happening. It's yeah, going to happen whether you like right. it or not. And even if you keep us out, we can still get in. So doing that assignment was, that's always been the thing that I like. I remember you going to that. Yeah. That's nuts. And it was, and it was weird because, um, you were nervous about that one. I was you? nervous because 
uh, anytime you go to like a Trump rally or go like people are always were always looking for the person that was going to disrupt. And at the time, like his rhetoric was like he punched these people in the face if they're, you know, so and so like during the rally, like I'm photographing people and stuff on my phone, like I'm photographing things. And um, I was sending the pictures like via email to my photo editor with like captions. So I would sit there and take a picture and then I'd be on my phone like, you know, and I was like, anybody that's like paying attention to me knows what's is, happening. Is probably wondering because I'm not clapping for anything. I'm not cheering. I'm just standing there like just photographing things. But but yeah, it was it was good. And that was like the first time I had seen the they had broke out the um, the these really vulgar like Trump T-shirts. Um, so it was like it, we weren't quite in the gutter. I think we were. But I think that was kind of the turning point of like everything is kind of going to shit. Yeah. But yeah, so that was, that was fun. Yeah. You get to see a lot of diverse things. I mean, you've been in hurricanes. Yeah. You've obviously you were in the heart. Well, you were right in the center of uh, the race riots in, in Charlotte about two years ago now. Sure. Yeah. Keith uh, Scott, yeah. 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 Was there, is there anything about that, that, that you'd like to talk about at all? Um, maybe, you know, maybe just even the, you know, part, cause part of your job isn't fun, right. you know, part of your job is to capture the things that we don't like that are happening. And in a sense, maybe even, but for the sake, well, for the many reasons, but one of them maybe just to be reminders of why we are need to change and, and mm. don't want things to happen again. Right. Um, was that, uh, I guess maybe if, you know, what was that experience, I guess, like? I know that's such a vague question, but, but what did you see maybe your, what was your purpose in covering that? Uh, well, I mean, just really kind of on the face of it, just being, um, you know, I feel like I have a responsibility first to, you know, if you're a photojournalist, wherever your community is, that's your community. So if things are happening here, you know, I want to to be a part of the the people that are documenting that, you know what I mean? <clears throat> and doing it in a way that's, I don't know, just trying to give, um, voice to it. Uh, and so like, as it started, like the first night, you know, it felt different and, you know, it's the same things that are, everybody kind of talks about, you know, it was just, it just, the whole thing felt different. Um, and then, then obviously just staying with it as it, as it came out. So you're, you're just kind of watching, um, you're just watching this thing kind of grow uh, and you're, it's almost watching, um, you know, somebody who's like sick and you're just watching them kind of like go through the stages of their sickness until they maybe get better or not get better. You know what I mean? I, I think it's arguably, uh, I don't, not sure if Charlotte is any better now than it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, almost certainly not. Right. But I think that, we're talking about it more um, and um, we're talking about the inequalities more than before, but I don't, I don't know that anything has really changed. Um, I don't know if CMPD has changed the way that they handle their internal investigations. I don't know if they've changed how they handle street protests. Um, I don't know if, uh, you know, I don't know if the city government is 
capable of implementing the changes that were wanted, you know, um, it's still very slow. I mean, if you just kind of see what happened with the, I mean, it's a little bit different topic, but the cross Charlotte trail and how they just one day found out that they don't have money to pay for it. Or like, like a hundred million dollars short or something right. insane. Yeah. Because they are over budget or like something. Well, Cause they ridiculous. waited, they waited too long and the, and the price of the property went up, <laughs> which is like, there's like new reevaluating tax property in, in Charlotte. And you know, like it's all in some, some places are going up 110%. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's still cheaper. Charlotte's cheaper than New York still, but at the same time, like, I don't like that. None of these things are helping anybody. Uh, it seems like, and you know, there's strides to, to trying to keep things going forward, but, um, there just seems to be a lot of talk. Like we're talking right now about it, you know, nothing's really happening and, you know, um, but yeah, it seems like part of one of the most beautiful things I think that you do is, is simply just capture the honesty of the moment as it is. And then, you know, I mean, we all know that you can make a documentary manipulating whatever angle you want to do or whatever it is. Um, but, but it just seems like if, if you capture the moment as honestly as you can, then it's, it's there, it's been captured and now it's up to whoever to do with that, whatever, whatever they are to do with it. You know, you, you aren't trying to create a story. You're, you're capturing the story. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's still, I mean, there's, there's always, um, some level of, of, I'm not, you know, I guess you can't fully be truthful with, with anything. I mean, there's always, you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly, uh, I don't subscribe to a lot of things on the right. So I probably lean more to the left and I, try to not like say if I'm on Twitter, I I don't like to, there are things that I feel that I want to tweet about or, you know, project openly in public, but I try to do that because I, I, I mean, the way things work now is, you know, I just, for one, I don't think that it matters uh, unless it's something super egregious. Um, I don't think anybody cares what I think about Trump. So I don't tweet about Trump. Um, But I don't know there's always biases that I think can leak into um, photographing things. And so I try to, um, I try to be aware of those things uh, as much as I can when I'm, when I'm doing that. But I know that there's probably times where, you know, um, I don't know. Like, so if I'm photographing somebody that I know is like, if I'm at a Trump rally um, and there's people yelling, and I'm like, I'm going to photograph this person yelling at me because, you know, F you. Um, that's, I feel like, a bias that I have that I shouldn't have. Or maybe I should. I don't know. Like, it's, these people are. You could you could take a picture of a mother holding her daughter's hand at a Trump rally in the same way you could hold, send pictures of people screaming at the top of their lungs. Right, yes. And so that's the, that's the, the hard thing to do because sometimes, which I have to not do this, um, I think like, well, if I, if I'm making, which I, I don't do, I don't, I don't, uh, when I'm editing my photos, when I'm sending, especially for the wire, I, they're news photos. So if they're, if it's newsworthy then, but I can't separate, I can't pretend that my, my, who I am when I'm looking at these right. photos. So 
like if if something is happening and it's like a sweet moment that like that's shows humanity at right. a Trump rally, like that's a photo that, you know, if I'm looking at it and I say like, you know, I have four photos, three of which are these crazy, you know, MAGA hat white dudes yelling at the camera and there's one woman holding a baby. Um, I can't say like, well, I want to do all, I want to do the three right. crazy guys and leave the woman with holding the baby out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen because both of those, both of those photos hold merit. Yeah. But yeah. Isn't it funny how, like, I think it was before he was elected, wasn't it? It was Jimmy Fallon that got in so much. For uh, bringing oh, him on yeah. the show. Yeah. For, and for what the, he messed up his hair and so that he got in, yelled at for humanizing him. But uh-huh. it's like, I, you know, I don't, I mean, I understand what they were saying, but the other side of that is I, I don't like, like we can't pretend that there aren't mothers holding daughters hands right on the, the, the side that you don't ascribe to, right. you know? And, and so, um, why, why can't you capture the honesty of in its totality of the good of the bad that is all present in, in the category that you like to call other in right. a sense? Cause I think if people see that, well, I think a lot of people, when they are looking at news photos, because they're everywhere now, they don't understand the purpose of why somebody is making that photo, why a photojournalist is making that picture. And it's not to make you, it's not because they want to try to influence you in a certain way. Uh, I think what a lot of really great photographers do when they're making photographs is that they are making things more difficult for you making your viewpoint more difficult. Um, Obviously, like, you know, and it's hard with Trump because, you know, there are a lot of racist people at those rallies. And the person, anybody you could be photographing could have a swastika tattoo or have like a Confederate flag in the back of their truck. They actually, the Confederate flag in the back of the truck, they probably have one or they have a very (laughs) like positive viewpoint. And that's just by being there and seeing the amount of Confederate flags. But, um, so like you have to be careful to not, um, give hate a platform, but at the same time still be able to, uh, I guess humanize everything and everybody and, and doing that in that space is, is difficult because, you know, you don't want to give hate a platform, but at the same time, you also don't want to just feed the echo chamber of like, this is all the stuff that you want to see. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of times when people see like a picture that, um, is a good example. That's on the other side of that is, uh, I think, uh, John Moore, I can't remember his name. Uh, he, he photographed this picture of a little girl, um, two migrants, a little girl's wearing a pink, um, like pink shirt, pink pants. And her mother is staying there with a border, um, guard and, and the daughter, little girl's like looking up crying. Yes, and, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And people were, were just outraged by that photo because they felt like it was um, like, oh, this is the news media that's trying to make us feel bad for not wanting, you know, immigrants to come seek asylum in the United States. Uh, but the, the man who made that photograph, like he's been photographing that for years. Yeah. And to him, that, that, is a, that, that photograph makes everybody... It challenges everybody, no matter what side of the coin you're on. And he didn't stage it. I mean, it happened. Yeah, well, I mean, so. people, but people think that 
those are all, I mean, we can go down that rabbit hole of morons on the internet, like picking apart uh, a scene that's playing out and saying like, wow, there was, you could tell it's set up because there's a camera crew over here. And it's like, yeah, there's camera people all around because there's tear gas being lit off. You know what I mean? Like there's a situation happening. So there's journalists there covering it. Like you're going to see them in the photo. It's not like a weird thing, but you know, good photography is, is going to challenge you uh, and it's going to challenge you one way or the other. And now some, you might see it and, and it's going to, you know, it's going to feed into, you know, people co-opted that, that photo and it was on uh, time magazines cover, I think the week after. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, but when you've heard, if you hear him talk about that picture, like he's just got a totally different, he was just there and it happened. Like you can't deny that it happened. Um, but it's just, we talked about this with Andy that once, once you make something and it is your art or your photograph or whatever, once, once it's out of your hands, it, you no longer own it. It, it is for the consumption of the world and they right. will make of it what they will. That's always super interesting with me. Yeah. It's very frustrating. Um, to hear people talk about, uh, well, like today CNN had, um, like a, a, f- a reporter and a photojournalist there when um, that Roger Stone was arrested. Arrested, and people were like, "Well, it's a setup because you know they they told CNN to be there and <laughs> CNN like hates Trump, <laughs> and it's like shadow government." Yeah, and and people <laughs> will just run with that and say like, "Yeah, it's the it's this conspiracy <laughs> tinfoil." Hat. But you know uh, what they're not understanding is that there's you know, a team of journalists that are, you know, paying attention to what's happening in the courts, you know, and something happened yesterday that led them to believe that something was going to happen. So, you know, there could have been reporters at anybody, other, other homes and places that on the off chance that maybe somebody is going to be there or something's going to happen. So like, there's only so many, there's so many people have been arrested. There's not many people left that you can probably choose from. Right. Um, So like, you know, I, I was reading about today, so they said that um, Mueller's grand jury meets on Fridays and they met on a Thursday, very rushed. And that's a weird thing to do. Um, so they just knew something bigger was going to happen. So, but this idea that as soon as all these things happen, people start tweeting like, why did CNN get there? And like Trump tweeted about it, like who told CNN about it? And it's like, it's just, it's journalism. And sometimes maybe, maybe somebody did get tipped off. Maybe someone from the FBI said like, hey, you know, like, something might be happening somewhere in Florida and you can put the things together or maybe they just said, Hey, we're going to go. Um, but that all kind of feeds in. It's not illegal. It's just, it's a tactic that I think people use, but anyway, so that's just how journalism works. And, you know, it's, it's getting scary because people are getting increasingly angry about, um, stuff that they don't understand. Like they don't understand why this is happening. So like a lot of the misunderstanding of like how the news works is being uh, fueled by people who really don't care what the answer is. That just fits the narrative and they're able to just continue on saying that the, the news is the enemy. And yeah, journalism is being demonized for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some, I think, I think maybe it seems like it's a lot bigger because if, if you see like four tweets about it, you think like, this is the whole, this is everybody thinks this way. And you're like walking down the street thinking like, Oh, I hope they don't know that I <laughs> have took a, a camera picture today for the news, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, all right. Well, here, let's uh, run through a, 
a list of questions here that we like to kind of end up uh, the conversation with. So I know that this could uh, this could launch a you know a very long answer, but but what would how would you briefly describe what's the thing that gets you out of bed? Uh, Three year old. <laughs> three year old named Ben. Yeah. A three year old is much more powerful than the Art Institute. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what gets me out of bed? I don't know. I'm, I can be very, uh, I'm still like, I have a lazy streak. So, what part of freelancing for me is that I can somewhat set my own hours and I can work, work as hard as I want. So, like, some, like, November, I think I worked an insane amount of time and December I didn't. And that's fine. Um, so, I think, I don't really have anything that gets me out of bed. I'm not like a super motivated person. What's the thing though, like out of the thousand things that you do that, that make up what you do, what, what are, what's the thing that makes you wake up saying, I get to do this today? Like what, what is that level of, this is what gives me joy when it comes to purpose, vocation, all of those things. Um, doing anything like news related, anything that is, if I can help tell those types of stories. If I'm, if I'm doing something that I feel like matters, which typically is, uh, I mean, pretty much anything it could be for anybody. If the, if the story and the person photographing is doing it because it's like a meaningful thing. Like if I'm photographing, uh, somebody that owns, I don't know, like, a. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> this one, yeah, it's New York times. It's not, um, but, uh, you know, sometimes you have to photograph somebody that you're like, ah, like, why is this person getting attention? <laughs> you know a, what do I mean? a dog bakery owner. Uh, well, I mean, even those types of places can be like the people who are there. Um, it's just meeting the people who are doing the things and you're like, oh, you're just, you know, this is terrible. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of, um, the motivation is like telling just, stories worth telling. Well, it's so, so cliched, like, Ooh, you know, you guys get out there and, and tell stories. But like, <laughs> I think if you are a true, if, if that's what you do, that's the thing that you like to do. So like any, any time that I can like contribute to that, because obviously for me, like a, a picture needs words. So like being part of a good story yeah. is great. Well, I think it's, you know, it's result, uh, the result of like there being this saturation of everyone has a camera, everyone's a photographer, all this kind of stuff. And so now everyone's a storyteller. One of the, the things that that does is it robs the people actually doing it of being able to say, I'm out here telling a story because, you know, it sounds like a cliche. But the fact is, those who are doing it are actually that really is what you you are doing. And yeah. I feel like a lot of you guys are being robbed of the ability to use that in a sense because it produces eye rolls. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's maybe part of that is true, but I think that the the amount of people who like really want to consume that, um, that appreciate that type of work, is definitely a lot less than somebody who, you know, wants to, you know, photograph somebody in a wide brim hat somewhere in the Pacific Northwest with like on a canoe on a lake somewhere. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. that sort of thing. Right. Like, obviously, that's made for mass consumption, and that's kind of what people say are, are like true storytelling. But you know the amount of people who are out there that are, are still craving that sort of like time and effort put into crafting these things. And a lot of like what I do, I, I'm coming after a writer. So like the writers are the ones who are like laying the groundwork for a lot of this stuff. And, um, you know, getting to work behind a really great writers is, is, is like pure magic because, you know, 
there's already a, a sense of like trust already built up. So you're just kind of helping build on that. Um, but yeah. Yeah. All right. So every vocation has its kind of its stereotypes, whatever. Some of them true, some of them not, whatever. Uh, not all encompassing or anything like that. But uh, surprise us. Like what? What? Uh, what would be? You know, if if we didn't know you, and um, okay, so he's a photojournalist. You know, he's an introvert. He came from the military into this, but surprise us with something. What? What is something about you that takes you outside of those confines? Uh Maybe an interest or, you know, do you, do you river dance? Do you anything like that? No, I, I'm, uh, I am a completely, I'm a pretty dull person. I think, I think that's not true. Honestly, that is, um, and you also have a very high work ethic cause I know how much you work. So uh, that, I'm also going to call you out on that. Uh, well, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I, I really, so the thing that I do, uh, like making pictures is kind of, I'm fortunate enough to, to do that and to be able to, to make a living doing that. So, uh, I would say like the stuff that I enjoy doing is kind of like, uh, my pastime and the things that I don't like to do like corporate stuff is no, I, I want to say that I don't like to do it. I do like to do it. Um, keep calling, right? Yeah. Keep- <laughs> Corporations, please keep calling. Oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not saying it for that. I'm just saying, I just, I don't think that I don't like doing it. It's just the, the if I'm like measuring the things up, but, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have, um, I don't have anything. I like chopping wood. I, there you go. I, That's a fun. good one. I don't know. You, got, you got me to a gun range one time. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, um, I mean, I do, uh, there is something, uh, that can be, uh, interesting about firing a handgun or a rifle, um, in the appropriate setting. Uh, but I, I don't really do that a lot. Um, I don't know. I like to just hang out, <laughs> drink beer or scotch or bourbon. Uh, you, I carry, like wine you carry too. a notebook in your top pocket. I carry it. You go. Yeah, yeah. Don't I you have like six things that you always have on you at all times? I do. And I have them right here. Can you tell us what they are? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I think you're this, not boring, but you are predictable. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably, and Jamie, my wife, would probably tell you. That I'm uh, extremely predictable. Uh, so I have a pocket knife, I have a chapstick, I have a pen, and this I just got this one. It's a right in the rain. Uh, it's a pocket pen. Nice. Uh, and I also have my wallet um, in my other pocket and my cell phone. Um, some days I'll have like a, a little. It's like this little. It's called a shard. It's like this little. It's piece of glass. It's <laughs> yeah. It's like this little piece of metal that does all this kind of crazy stuff. But I don't know where it is. I think I lost it. Um, but yeah. I, that's yeah. If that's the most interesting thing about me, <laughs> somebody else like, would be like, <laughs> "I need to really." Uh, I've climbed Everest. And oh yeah. yeah. Have I shown you my shard? <laughs> okay, do you want to see my shard? Um, so yeah. give us a recommendation. Anything. anything. Book, Netflix, podcast, <clears throat> photographer. Well, I just. Uh, well, I'm not done reading it, but uh, I think you said you talked about it with. Andy Smith. Um, it wasn't his recommendation if you're going to say Okay. What I think you so, are. yeah, it was um, Tommy Tomlinson's um, An Elephant in the Room uh, is a book. Tommy is a local um, writer, journalist, um, podcaster, uh, just a great human being. Um, wrote a book about uh, his struggle with uh, obesity and, and kind of his, uh, his way through it, uh, which is a really uh, great book. 
Um, he was on the Today Show this week. He was on the Today Show, yeah. Which is nuts. I know. And he was totally cool with it. He didn't seem like nervous or anything. Uh, yeah, I would, amazing. I would be, uh, what? Sharding yourself? Sharding myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not full on, but just <laughs> wet farts. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. best, best coffee in Charlotte. Best coffee in Charlotte. Uh, Central Coffee. I don't Central. know why you didn't think about it. It's um, not even close. The one on Louise. Uh, that's one of my favorite places to go um, in Charlotte, actually. And then uh, also, I guess it'd be like a, a close second, uh, the Midnight Diner Coffee, which is just regular coffee. It's it's good. Um, people that are coffee snobs, I got a real problem with you because like, <laughs> Just drink it. Okay? Coffee, you know, same coffee. with same with wine. Like I'm sure that there's like really great wine out there, but it all like I've I've had bad wine, so I kind of know what it tastes like. But even the bad wine, still like this is I can I can do this. It's fine. <laughs> and coffee's the same way. Like you could just if it if it tastes like shit, just put cream and sugar in it. It's fine. <laughs> Make it a little sweeter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Last question. Uh, what is the? It doesn't have to be. We and we. Rip this from another podcast. And Unapologetic. I don't, care. don't even it. care. Okay. Uh, wh- what is the hardest time you've ever laughed? The hardest time I've ever laughed? Yeah. Doesn't oh, have. It doesn't have to be a funny story, but it, it just the last or even the last time that you laughed so hard that you cried. It can be something dumb. It can be a fart. You're a father now. I'm sure Ben does yeah, something. It, it was probably something that Ben did, but I don't remember what it was. But I I think we probably. Uh, uh, it's actually coming to me now. I can't remember. Um, so people were at our house. This was maybe when Ben was two and he kept saying something over and over again. And it was just weird because he was not really talking yet. And he was just saying, <laughs> I can't remember what it was though. Somebody will remember kept saying it over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, oh wait, I'll tell you. It, so I think the time that I laughed the absolute hardest was, I was in the military. I was almost out, uh, and my friend Johnny Collins um, and his wife uh, Sadie uh, got a beagle puppy. And I remember we were over at his apartment one night, and we were probably having some drinks, or whatever. And we're on the floor, and I was on the floor on the, by the couch, and the dog came up and started humping me. <laughs> and I, I don't want to get like too graphic, but I could feel no, go ahead. the dog's penis poking me in my back. And I, I remember laughing hard. Everybody was laughing hard, but I remember laughing so hard that I was like, I don't think people are capable of laughing like this. Like everybody else is laughing, but like it was happening to me and it was just, I bet the, was the dog feeling very insecure? I don't, I don't know, but it, it felt like, yeah, it felt like a little kid's pinky was like poking me in the back. I just remember that was so funny. That a, that's, that's worth a, remembering. Yeah, 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 thank you. Yeah, I'll have to text him today and ask him if he remembers. But he also had we also this this game me and him we would do it was called Locker Doctor and so like the last um, the last year I was in the military I was working in a clinic and what we would do when um, Marines would come in for sick call or get their vital signs they had to go to this little room and inside this little room there was this like maybe a six foot tall three foot deep locker. <laughs> So <laughs> what we would do if we were both working there, one of us would go into the room before the other person come in, get inside the locker, yeah. and then the other person would bring <laughs> the patient into the room and leave. <laughs> and then the person in the locker would just like wait maybe like 
30. five minutes. No, like a long time. <laughs> just wait. Cause like the longer you wait in there, the weird it is for the person. <laughs> and just like, and so like wait the two or to five minutes and then just walk out of the locker oh, the, and then take the vital signs. As if oh, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, sorry. You got a battle wound. Uh, oh, and it was people were like, it was like a head cold. Those types of things. Um, yeah. Logan, so, thanks, man. Sorry, sorry, I rambled a little. Bit. No, that's no, not perfect. At all. I appreciate you doing this so much. Thanks for having me. Love yeah. you very much. We did it. Well, thanks, man. I mean.